various selections from John 14, 15, and 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will that one do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Central West End Church. If we have not had the privilege of meeting, my name is Matt Creasy. Uh, I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Central West End Church, and I move a lot. That's why I'm moving this stuff, so I don't bump into anything. Um, <clears throat> anyway, it's, it's a real privilege and a pleasure to preach the Word this morning, and it's actually double my pleasure because I get to kick off our newest sermon series. For the entire month of August, we are going to be studying the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, some of us have been waiting for this sermon series since the very first day we came to this church, and we've got our anointing oil ready, and we're ready for revival, and I share your enthusiasm. But for the rest of us, if you're wondering, okay, why are we studying the Holy Spirit? The answer is that a lot of churches in our context, a lot of American churches, just don't really talk about the Holy Spirit very much, if at all. And those churches that do talk a lot about the Holy Spirit... A lot of the information out there can be really confusing, and it can be, just, it can, it's left us in a place where if you ask kind of the average American Christian, okay, who is the Spirit, and what does he do? 
you'd get a variety of answers and a lot of, uh, well, he, um, bleh, we're not entirely sure. And in fact, I would be willing to bet that a lot of us in the room, even those of us that have been Christians for many, many years, would say, you know, I'm actually not entirely sure what role the Holy Spirit plays in the Christian life. Now, that is a real tragedy because the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is not simply important, that actually the Holy Spirit is fundamentally central to what it means to be a Christian. In fact, I would go as far as to say that the Bible teaches that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. So it behooves us as people who follow Christ to know and understand who the Spirit is, what he does, and why it matters. But even if you are not a Christian, if you are here and you're exploring the claims of Jesus Christ, or maybe you lost a bet to a friend, whatever it is, we're glad that you're here. You're very welcome to be with us this morning. Uh, I would actually say this series is going to be relevant for you too. Because every single one of us, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you are spiritually, all of us deeply, deeply long to live lives of empowerment transformed lives where we're connected to something much bigger and more meaningful than ourselves. I'm going to make the audacious yet biblical claim that you cannot live that life except by having the Holy Spirit. So that's the why. Let's, let's talk a little bit about where we're going. So this morning we're asking the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And in the weeks to come, we're going to really start talking about what he does, the work of the Spirit, and we're going to tease that out. But you can't really talk about the who of the Spirit without at least addressing the work, right? So my hope is that we're going to do kind of a 30,000-foot view of the work of the Spirit, kind of a just general overview that we'll then tease out in the weeks to come. So if you get to the end of this morning and you're like, I still have a million questions— good. Come back, and we will hopefully address a lot of those questions, okay? Um, Now, let's turn to our passage. When thinking about the question, who is the Holy Spirit, there's actually a lot of passages we could turn to, both Old and New Testament. The Holy Spirit doesn't just show up in the New. He's all over the place in the Bible, but the problem is he's kind of a mysterious character. One theologian put it that the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. He doesn't like the spotlight, So he's there, but not a lot of passages give us direct, explicit information on who he is and what he does. But John chapters 14 to 16 is one of the few places that we get explicit information. And what's better is it comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus is about to go to the cross. In John chapter 18, Jesus is arrested. Okay, so right now he's giving them last-minute instructions and teaching. He's like, okay, this is what I want you to know. Before I go away, this is the stuff I really want you to know. And he says a lot, but one of the primary things he has to tell us is that he is going to send the Holy Spirit. Okay? And as I have looked through John chapters 14 to 16, and I've considered, what does Jesus actually tell us about who the Spirit is? From what I can tell, Jesus gives us a fourfold answer. All right, note takers ready? Four-fold answer. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is the person of God. And he empowers the people of God with the presence of God for the purposes of God. If you're like me, 
and you enjoy alliteration, you're welcome. I'm going to say that again. The Holy Spirit is the person of God who empowers the people of God with the presence of God for the purposes of God. Okay? Person who empowers the people of God with the presence of God for the purposes of God. Okay. That's where we're going. Saddle up. Let's ride. All right. The Holy Spirit is the person of God. Where does Jesus tell us that the Holy Spirit is the person of God? Well, let's, let's consider how Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. Or maybe how he doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit. If you notice, Jesus keeps using the word the. He calls him the spirit of truth. He calls him the helper. He calls him the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say a spirit of holiness or truth abstractly or a help. He says the. He's referring to a distinct entity. And what's more, he calls the spirit a he. Now, this actually shows up very distinctly in the Greek. In Koine Greek, that's the language that the New Testament was written in, uh, nouns have genders, okay? It's a lot like Spanish or Italian or French, if you guys ever studied those in school, where certain words have genders. They're either masculine or feminine, or in the case of Greek, there's also neutered, okay? And to speak Grammatically correct, you want to make sure that the pronoun, the gender of the pronoun matches the gender of the noun. But spirit in Koine Greek is a neutered word. It's not masculine, it's not feminine, it's neutered. But Jesus uses a masculine singular pronoun. He goes out of his way to speak ungrammatically in order to highlight the fact that the spirit is not an it, but a he. The spirit is a person, he's not a force. He's not an impersonal power. He's not a divine principle. He is a person, a distinct person, right? The Father sends the Spirit. The Son sends the Spirit via the Father. So they're they're distinct. He's not the Father. He's not the Son. He is a distinct person. But what do we see this distinct person doing? Well, it's very interesting. Jesus calls him the helper, which is a word that Jesus uses about himself. Jesus calls himself the helper. But now the Spirit is. Jesus says that the Father sends the Spirit. But in the Gospel of John, that is one of the primary ways Jesus likes to talk about himself, that he's the one sent from the Father. But now the Spirit's being sent by the Father. You notice in chapter 16 where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will not speak on his own authority, but he will declare to you all that he has heard from the Father. That is exactly what Jesus said about himself. Multiple times in the Gospel of John, but right in chapter 14. It's, it's not in your bulletin, but in chapter 14, right before this, he says, I have not spoken on my own authority. I have told you all that I've heard from the Father. And you see at the end of chapter 16, the Holy Spirit declares all that belongs to Jesus. So there's this strange identification between Jesus and the Spirit. Pretty similar to the identification Jesus makes with himself and the Father. And actually, as we look through the New Testament, we see the Spirit doing God stuff, doing divine things that only God himself can do. And he's actually talked about in a number of places as being synonymous with God. So this distinct person is God. And actually, as we look throughout the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation beginning to end, this pattern emerges, unity and distinction. Distinction and unity. There is only one God. 
The Bible never backs away from that. The New Testament never backs away from that. There is only one God. He's it. There is none other. There's not three gods. There's not a spectrum of deity. There's not like one big G God, two little G gods. There is one God, period, full stop. And there are these three persons, the Father, who is God, the Lord Jesus, the Son, who is God, and the Holy Spirit, who is God. All three of them are spoken of as being synonymous with God himself. All three of them are worshipped as God. All three of them do God's stuff, things that only God himself can do. But yet they're distinct. The Father is not the Spirit. He's not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. He's not the Father. The Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. They are distinct persons, and there is only one God. The word that we use to describe this reality, this one God, three persons, this unity and distinction, the word that we use is the Trinity. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, that's confusing. Like, Matt Creasy, I mean, that just seems to kind of run counter to reason. It just, how can one God be three persons? That sounds like nonsense. Well, you're in good company because I can't explain it to you. The Trinity extends beyond the boundaries of our human reason and explanation. It is what theologians refer to as a mystery. And when I say mystery, don't think Sherlock Holmes or Blue's Clues if you're of a certain age. Okay? Those mysteries are really problems, right? Somebody got away with murder. Blue lost her bone. And if you follow the clues, you'll solve the mystery. That is not what we mean. When theologians use the term mystery, what we mean is a reality that we live inside of. It's just the way it is. We cannot fully explain it. Let me give you an example. Physicists will tell you that light will sometimes behave like a particle, and sometimes it will behave like a wave. And we would say, well, how can light be, act like two completely different things? And we would say, we don't know. It's a mystery. It's just the way it is. We can't fully explain it. Everybody tracking with me on what I mean by mystery? Okay, the Trinity is a mystery, and it's one that we should not seek to solve. God is one God and three persons. Three persons, one God. And that's how he's revealed himself. That two human beings in time and space history, as it's recorded in his word, God has shown himself to be one God and three persons. And when we try to solve that mystery, when we try to figure it out, what we're actually doing is putting ourselves in God's place where it is no longer God telling us who he is, it's us telling God who he is. And look, guys, it's really tempting to do this. Let's not kid ourselves. It's very tempting. There have been literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of groups throughout history that have tried to do this. And the reason it's so tempting is that when you're, putting, when you're in the position of telling God who he is, you're also privy to the privilege of setting the terms of the relationship. Let me, let me explain what I mean. So, all those various groups, what, one of the ways we talk about those various groups is we call them Christian cults. And I realize that sounds a little offensive. I don't mean that to be offensive. What I simply mean is any group that would claim to believe the Bible, at least in some capacity, but they would not stand in line with the historic, traditional, orthodox Christian faith. 
They've separated themselves away from that, okay? So groups like the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian scientists, um, Rastafarians, black Israelites, any group that would claim the Bible but would not align with the historic Christian Orthodox faith, okay? You know what all of them have in common? Every last one, from the modern-day Jehovah's Witness to the Arians in the 5th century, what do all of them have in common? Two things. One, they deny the Trinity. They reject the the notion of the Trinity. And two, they all see salvation as fundamentally based in human effort. Where salvation is no longer a free gift of God's grace given to us that we receive by faith, it's something that we do for ourselves. Now, isn't that interesting? That when we put ourselves in the position of telling God who he is, we get to set the terms of the relationship where suddenly it's all about what I do for God, not what God has done for me. And listen, this, there's not just religious groups that do this. Secular people do this too. You guys, there's a, so there's a really common narrative in our culture. I'm going to call it the pluralist narrative. And it goes something like this, that God is too big to be put into the box of any one religion. All religions are just pathways to God, right? At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you believe. All that matters is that you seek to be a good person and live a good life. Everybody heard that or some version of that? Maybe you yourself have said something like that. That's the pluralist narrative. But do you know what the problem is with that view? One, that view is itself a box into which you've put God. Two, having that view of God wouldn't be a problem if God was a force or an impersonal power or a divine principle in the universe. But God has revealed himself to be a person, a unique person with his own thoughts and his own feelings and his own opinions and preferences. And you don't get to persons except through personal relationship, right? That would be like me saying, all women are equal pathways to my marriage. (laughs) It doesn't matter who I'm married to. All that really matters at the end of the day is that I seek to be a good and loving husband to women. (laughs) Now, if you have not met my wife, Nicole Creasy, she's the really good-looking one on this side. I won't point her out. Uh, If you've not met her, I'm going to tell you a little something about her. That ain't going to fly in her house. All right? Why? Why is that not okay? Because I didn't marry the concept of women. I didn't marry the idea of women abstractly. I married that woman. I married Nicole. And I don't get to Nicole except through personal relationship. And like all relationships... It's not about me. It's about us. It's about the reciprocating nature of our... Are we living in a good and loving marriage? Not whether am I being a good and loving husband generally. Right? When we put ourselves into the position of defining God and we make him impersonal, we also put ourselves in the position of setting the terms of the relationship where it's no longer about the relationship but it's about me. God has revealed himself to be one God and three persons, three persons and one God, and that is a mystery 
that we should not seek to solve. Because when we do so, what we're actually doing is putting ourselves in God's place where it is no longer God telling us who he is and who we are, but us telling God who he is and who we are. That is a position we don't belong in. He is God. We are not. We are the creature. He is the creator. The Holy Spirit is the person of God, distinct from the Father and the Son, but fully God in and of himself. So that's the who. But again, doesn't fully get to it because part of the who is what does he do? Because what makes the individual members of the Trinity distinct is that they're not all doing the exact same thing all the time, right? They each fill a unique role within the Trinity and in the life of the church. So what does the Spirit do? What what is the work of the Spirit? And again, 30,000 foot view, we're just general overview. We're going to tease this out as the weeks go. Okay, what we've said was that the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God with the presence of God for the purposes of God. Okay, the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God with the presence of God for the purposes of God. All right, let's talk about those one by one. The Holy Spirit empowers the people of God. What aspect of the Christian life does the Holy Spirit empower? Well, the answer is all of it. Beginning to end, stem to stern, first day to last day, the Holy Spirit is the operating power of the entire Christian life. Uh, We're going to talk about this more next week, but if you're here considering the claims of Jesus Christ, biblically speaking, you are not here by your own effort. You are here because the Holy Spirit has empowered you to be here. If you've turned to the Lord Jesus and said, Jesus is Lord, you cannot do that except by the power of the Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, it is only by the power of the Spirit that you are able to do so. We didn't, we didn't do it this morning, but in our assurance of pardon, it came from Ezekiel 36. If you go back later, you can look at it. God, in the Old Testament, in, through his prophet Ezekiel, promises to send his people the Holy Spirit. Why? so that they would obey him and that they would know him. We can't know God. We can't read the Bible properly. We can't follow God. We can't live as Christians except by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers our worship. He empowers our prayers. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us in words that when we don't know what to pray, right? The Holy Spirit empowers our unity. The New Testament says some crazy stuff about Christian unity. One chapter later, chapter 17 of of Gospel of John, Jesus prays to the Father, and he's praying for us. And he says, Father, let them be one as you and I are one. What? In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. All of the distinctions that would divide us have been brought down in Jesus Christ. How is that possible? Because look around the room. The distinctions remain. And sometimes it looks like the divisions remain too. And the answer is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit really but mysteriously unites us to Jesus and to one another such that we are one body in Christ. The Spirit empowers our sacraments. Every single week, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. 
And what do we say? That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this bread is my body. And this wine is my blood shed for many. How is that possible? It looks like bread. It sure tastes like wine. The answer is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit mysteriously but really allows us to partake of the cleansing body and blood of the Lord Jesus when we take this meal together. The Holy Spirit also empowers our witness. Now, this is kind of dipping my toe into the purposes of God a bit, but do you notice in chapter 15, look with me again, chapter 15, he says, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The pattern that we see all throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is that God draws us in in order to send us out. Okay? God chose the people of Israel so that they might be a light to the nations. And Jesus arrives on the scene and he follows the same pattern. But side note, I'm going to step over here, side note. Did you know Jesus did not begin his earthly ministry until after he was anointed by the Holy Spirit? Jesus did the things that he did by the power of the Spirit because he was fully human just as we are. Okay, side note. But he gets anointed by the Spirit, and he begins his ministry, and he does crazy things, right? He declares, the kingdom of God has come. And he said, made claims like that he was God's anointed, the Messiah, the chosen one. And he made claims of being equal to God himself. How did he validate his teaching and the things that he said? How did he validate that? Through miraculous signs. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He stilled the storm, right? He fed 5,000 people. He did all of these miraculous signs. And then he gathers this little group of apostles and disciples, a, pretty much a group of bumbling idiots who are kind of like, we don't really get, understand what you're saying. And he says, all right, let me, I'm going to teach you. And look at what he says in, verse, in chapter 14, the very beginning. He says, if anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I do, and greater works than these will that one do. How is that, like, how is that possible? Well, what do we see? In the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends on the church, and it just blows up. These bumbling idiots who didn't get it, who didn't understand, are suddenly preaching with power and declaring, He is risen! And these guys who just weren't getting it are suddenly going out, and they're doing the very things that Jesus did. They're healing the sick. They're casting out demons. They're raising the dead in the name of Jesus, validating that Jesus really is who he said he is. And look, guys, that's still happening. I know this is controversial to say in a Presbyterian church, but right now, in our world, all over the globe, even in our own city, even in our own church, people are speaking with boldness about who Jesus is. People are living lives, witnessing to the reality of the gospel, and miraculous things are happening so that those who witness it might know that Jesus really is Lord and that there really is life in his name. If we would have but eyes to see it. Let's get real practical for a minute. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? Like, 
Jesus says that if we ask for anything in his name, he will give it. Anything. Do you pray big prayers? Now, I can already see some of you doing the like, hold on, just look a little further. He says, if you ask for anything to the, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, we, we can't ask God for anything like, and just wave the magic wand of Jesus' name over it like, I want a new car in the name of Jesus, right? We can't, you can't manipulate God. And you're right. You're right. We can't manipulate God. But don't let that be the reason why you don't ask. He says he will give us anything we ask for in his name. When you pray, do you pray audacious prayers? Do you pray things that it's like, the only way this is going to come true is if it's a miracle? Or do you only pray maintenance prayers? Like, thank you for my food. Help me get through today. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? That's biblical too. But do you ever pray big prayers that kind of scare you? Can I challenge us this month as we study the Holy Spirit that we ask God in the name of Jesus for things that make us uncomfortable? Ask for big things that you would say, the only way that gets answered is if God does a miracle. And then I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, because you know, you can talk to him because he's a person, not a power, not a force, not an impersonal principle at work in the universe. He is a person. You can talk to him and you can say, Spirit, I need you to give me eyes to see. I need you to give me the sensitivity to see how you're going to answer this prayer. I'm going to do that this month. Will you do that with me? Can we do that as a church together? Can we pray those prayers? And can we ask the Spirit to do His work in us? The Holy Spirit is the person of God. He is distinct from the Father and the Son, but He is fully God in and of Himself. And that is a mystery we should not seek to solve. And He empowers the people of God. But he doesn't empower us from a distance, right? He doesn't, it's not like the spirit kind of stands back here and he's like, zap, right? He doesn't do that. This power comes from his presence, right? Do you see there kind of at the end of chapter or right at the end of that first paragraph of chapter 16 where Jesus says, uh, this world cannot receive the spirit, but you know him because he dwells with you, meaning like, what he mean, talking to the apostles, he means, because I'm with you, the Spirit's with you now. But he will be in you. And what do we see? Again, day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit descends. Does he come down and kind of hover over the church? Does he kind of just like zap, they all go, woo? No, he descends on each and every one of them. In fact, the testimony of the New Testament is that what does it fundamentally mean to be a Christian? It is not, first and foremost, a thing that we believe, nor a thing that we do. Now, there are radical implications for the stuff we believe and the stuff we do if you are a Christian. Go back and listen to the sermon series we just finished up in the book of James. There are radical implications for that. But first and foremost, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means... God himself, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of you. 
He indwells you. Not, he doesn't live with you like a roommate you found on Craigslist. He has literally taken up residence in your insides. That means wherever you go, whatever you are doing, regardless of who you're with, regardless what it is you are doing, every single second of every single day of your life, the Holy Spirit, He is not simply watching you, He is with you. That should be simultaneously profoundly encouraging and terribly upsetting. Right? The Holy Spirit empowers all of the Christian life from beginning to end, stem to stern, with his presence. But why? Why does God send the empowering presence of the Spirit to the church? To what end? Well, Jesus actually tells us. He tells us in chapter 16. Uh, He says that the Spirit comes in order to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, I don't think Jesus could have chosen three more loaded words in order to describe why the Spirit needs to come. Right? Especially for us, as modern people, we hear those words are so loaded to us, right? We, we just bring all kinds of baggage, especially to that word judgment, right? Like, we hear those words and we just get like, oh, and a lot of it has to do with how words like that have been used in our history to hurt people right? And maybe even hurt you personally. But keep in mind, this text was written 2,000 years ago. We are very much removed in history from the writing of this text. So the baggage that we bring to words like sin and judgment is not the baggage that Jesus and his disciples would have had, okay? So when we encounter words that make us uncomfortable in the Bible, the first question we need to ask is, what did they mean to those people not how do those words make me feel, but how did, what did they mean? How did it make them feel? Okay? Now, there's a lot we could, and we could do a whole other sermon on those three words, alone, that passage alone. But in, if I'm going to summarize what Jesus is getting at, it's this. Every single one of us, every culture that has ever existed, every religion, every philosophy, every worldview, all of us, acknowledge something's wrong with the world. There's something wrong. It's things are not the way they should be. Now, we all have different ideas about what, what is wrong and what do we do about it. I mean, that then variations abound. But we all acknowledge something's wrong. The testimony of God's word is that the thing that is fundamentally wrong with the world is that humanity, all of us, the pinnacle of God's creation, the only creature to bear God's image, we are all of us fundamentally turned away from our creator. We are fundamentally oriented away from God. We seek to live lives apart from God. And look, that is not simply a statement about the bad things we do. That, even the the best things we do, the nicest things that we do, we do oriented away from God himself. And it's destroying the world. 
the world we live in because of our rejection of our creator is now under the control of evil and injustice and inequality and sickness and decay, social breakdown and death itself. But God has made a promise. And he's promised that there is a day coming when he will come to earth and he will judge it. And when when the Bible says judge, what that means is that God's plan is to radically cleanse the world. He is going to eradicate all sin and evil and injustice and hatred and bigotry and decay and death itself. All of it wiped away fully and forever so that the world that we live in will once again be a place that is filled with perfect peace and life and flourishing where there is no more death or crying or mourning or pain. But the question remains, how can God eradicate evil, injustice, bigotry, and all of those things without eradicating us, the ones who perpetuate evil and injustice and bigotry and all of those things? And the answer is that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, became a human being. And he lived the human life that we, all of us, should have lived. He spent his entire life perfectly oriented to God. And then he went to the cross, and he died the most inhuman death imaginable. And in a very strange and mysterious way, on the cross, the Father placed all of our sin, all of our evil, all of our injustice and our inequalities and our bigotries and our racism and all of those things. He placed them on to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and then he eradicated it. And it killed Jesus. But because our Lord is not just fully human, he is also fully God. On the third day, he rose up in victory from death. And he ushered in a new humanity, a humanity free from the shackles of evil and death and decay. And if you believe in his name, you will participate in that new humanity forever. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Yep, we talk about that every week, Matt Creasy. I know, every sermon whether we're in Genesis or we're in Psalms or James, wherever we are, you guys always circle back to Jesus. I get it. We say it different ways every week. Jesus was cursed so that we might be blessed. Jesus was brought low so that we might be brought up, you know, on and on. You got every single week. But I thought we were talking about the Holy Spirit. Weren't we talking about the Holy Spirit? Why are you suddenly talking about Jesus? Well, for one thing, we don't come back to the cross of Christ every single week as some kind of cool, kitschy thing that we do here. We're taking our cues from Jesus himself. He said all scripture is about him. It all points to him. But two, did you notice what Jesus said at the very end of chapter 16, verse 14, that the Spirit comes to what? Glorify the Lord Jesus and declare to us what belongs to him. 
We do not study the person and the work of the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of the Lord Jesus. We study the person and the work of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Lord Jesus. We don't look at the Spirit in order to get away from Christ. We study the Spirit to get deeper into Christ, to get more of Christ. Okay? And what did we see earlier? God draws us in in order to send us out. This month, as we study the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, what it ought to produce in us is a more powerful witness that we leave this room every week more confident, more boldly proclaiming that Jesus really is who he said he is. He is Lord, and there is life in his name. The Holy Spirit is the person of God. He is distinct from the Father and the Son, but he is God, and that's a mystery we should not seek to solve. The Holy Spirit empowers the people of God every single day for all that we do, and he empowers us with his presence. And he does so in order to get us more deeply into the Lord Jesus so that we might feed richly on him in order to be sent back out and declare to a witnessing world that Jesus really is who he says he is. And the people of God said, amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, in your word, you promised that if we ask for anything in your name, Lord Jesus, that you would give it. So I ask right now that you would empower this church, Central West End Church, that you would revive us, that we would drink deeply of you, and that you would use us to bring revival to the city and to the world, and that people who are far off would come near, people who are weak would be made strong, all to the glory of your name, Lord Jesus. And Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see that you're at work. Help us to see the miraculous things that are happening right in front of us. To your glory and in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.